please take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the book of John, John chapter 1. And this morning we'll be reading from verse 19 to verse 37. John chapter 1, verse 19 to verse 37. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself. He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified saying, I've seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Amen. Last Sunday, we looked at the preceding uh, four verses to this passage and we saw that Christ is like no other. There is nobody who is like Jesus Christ. Nobody's like him because of his position. He is above all and he's beyond all. And we saw that nobody's like Christ because of his possession. He is the one who possesses grace. He's the one who is grace. And finally, we saw that Christ is like no other because of his presentation. He is the one who presents God. He is the one who reveals God. Firstly, because he is able to do so. I'm the only one who is able to do so. But secondly, because he is the one that is qualified to reveal God to us. And so in John's gospel, we have seen much about the person of Jesus Christ. About how he is unique. About how he is God. About how he is man. We would all acknowledge that being aware of something 
is important. You cannot fix a leak in your house unless you are aware of it. You cannot address a problem unless you're aware that it is there. You cannot take advantage of an offer in a supermarket unless you know that offer is on. And you cannot address a need unless you're aware that the need exists. Uh, the passage that we have read uh, from verse 19 to verse 37 moves on speaking about Jesus Christ. But what John, and this is the writer John, John the Apostle is doing, he, he's no longer giving us his argument. He's now backing up his argument with evidence and he's giving an eyewitness testimony to the life of Jesus. He's writing about the life that Jesus had in this world. He's writing about the events of Jesus Christ. We might even see it's a form of biography, not a complete biography, not even an ordered biography for John's gospel does not go in chronological order. But what it is, is an account of Jesus Christ, the things that he did, the things that took place, the things that he caused. And what John the Apostle does is he begins, not with Jesus particularly, but with John the Baptist. And the reason that he begins with John the Baptist is John the Baptist was commissioned by God. It was a divine appointment that John would come and would speak about Jesus Christ, that he would prepare the way. And so if John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus Christ, it makes sense that the writer of this gospel would prepare the way for our hearts to see Jesus by telling us what John the Baptist did. And what John the Baptist is doing, and that's his nickname incidentally, is he's baptizing people. He's called John the Baptist because he is baptizing people in the River Jordan. It's not something that John the Baptist decided would be a good idea, but it was what God told him to do. And as we break into this story, we're actually breaking into this story after John the Baptist, with a degree of reluctance, has baptized Jesus Christ. And having done this and having baptized many, many Jews, all of a sudden there is a group of people who come and surround John and they're peppering him with question after question about who he is and what he's doing and why he thinks he's able to do this. And that's on the first day. Then on the second day, which is in verse 29, we see that John the Baptist lifts up his hand and he points to somebody and he says, Look. See, there is the one that I'm talking about. And he speaks to his disciples and those round about as to who Jesus Christ is. And then on the third day, which is verse 35, John, in a very intimate gathering, just John the Baptist and two of his disciples speaking, and John says, again, here's the Lamb of God. And in many ways, he's advising or telling his disciples that this is the one that they should be following. And how is it John the Baptist does these things? Why can he deny greatness for himself? Why can he acclaim and give an accolade to this man, Jesus? Why can he tell his disciples that they should be following this man, Jesus? It's because John the Baptist is aware of who Jesus Christ is. And it's important that we have an awareness of Jesus Christ. The first way that we are aware of Jesus Christ is that we are to be alert. We are to be alert. Verses 19 through to 28 speak about how John is alert to the person of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist does not just know about Jesus, but he speaks about him. 
John the Baptist doesn't just look inward, but he speaks outward. And John had been in the business of baptizing for a period of time at this point. And it was Jews that he was baptizing. The people who were God's chosen. The people who were special because God had said, you are the nation whom I love. You're the nation that I will bless. And many may have asked, well, why on earth do Jews need to be baptized? After all, they have the mark of the covenant on them. They have the mark that says they are God's people. They've been circumcised, or at least the men have. But John is not baptizing to show them their uh, nationality. John is not baptizing them to show them their identity in this world. He's baptizing them because of the state of their hearts. John is baptizing them because they are repentant of their sin. He's baptizing them because they have realized that their position before God is such that they have offended him and they need to come back to him. And it's this activity that catches the attention of the ruling body. John is saying, here are sinners who need God to deliver them. And the ruling body are are saying, well, surely that is our job to tell people how they come to God. Surely that's within our gift to show them how they should come and make themselves right before God. After all, we have the sacrificial system. After all, we have priests. After all, we have Pharisees to tell them the law. Uh, That's our job. And here is this unknown man doing what we want to do. And he's doing it in a way that we would never do it. And so the first thing about being alert is about being alert regarding identity. The identity of Jesus Christ and the identity that we have. Look at verses 19 through to 23. And this is where John is accosted by this delegation. It says, the Jews sent to him priests and Levites. Now the term Jews there uh, in scripture can refer to the whole of Israel, the whole of Judea. But here this term the Jews has to speak about the rulers, the religious rulers. The nation didn't send the priests and Levites, but the rulers did. It's likely here that what John, the writer, John the apostle is speaking about is the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin was the ruling council in Israel. They were all powerful except regarding Rome. Rome was more powerful than them, but they had the say regarding life in Israel. They were the ones who determined what people should and shouldn't do. And so this ruling council, the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and of religious men and of legal experts, they send this group of priests and Levites to question John. They want to know what on earth is going on here. The priests, they were the ones who officiated at all religious ceremonies. They they come, but they're accompanied by the Levites. Now, the Levites were the people who helped the priests. They were actually the police force in the temple. And so you have this group of religious experts together with a group of force and of authority. And they are pointing the finger at John and saying, who on earth are you? And John simply says, well, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not God's chosen one for the deliverance of his people. I'm not him. And so the group would go on and they say, well, who are you then? Are you Elijah? Now, Elijah was the prophet in the book of 1 Kings. And you might remember Elijah did some wonderful things. He challenged the prophets of Baal at the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, He was much used by God, but Elijah didn't die. 
Elijah was caught up in a chariot of fire and taken into heaven. And it was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that Elijah would come back as the terrible day of the Lord approached. When the end of the world approached, Elijah would return. In fact, at the Passover feast that is uh, still celebrated each year by Jews, often an empty chair is left in case Elijah comes back and needs to occupy that chair. But John says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the one that is here to herald the end of the world. And so they come down a notch again. They say, well, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18? The prophet who would come before the Messiah and speak about the Messiah. And John, who's got no airs or graces, John, who's really not trying to lift himself up, he says, no, I'm not that prophet either. Because John is aware of who he is. John is aware who, of who Christ is. And this delegation are frustrated. This delegation are completely bemused. Well, why are you doing these things? Who are you that you can do these things? And so John speaks of himself humbly. He speaks of himself without any pretension. He just says, well, I'm a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't lift himself up. He doesn't make himself great. He's just honest about who he is in front of these people. And this morning, let me encourage you to know who you are. The Bible tells us that we are all sinners. The Bible tells us that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that not one of us can do anything that's pleasing to God. The Bible tells us that not one of us can do anything to make us right with God. That is who you are. But the Bible also tells us that you are loved by God. The Bible also tells us that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross that you might be restored to God. And so I ask you this morning, who are you? Are you the person before God who says, I don't need a savior. I don't need forgiveness. I don't want the blessing that you give me, God. Is that who you are this morning? Have you time and time again, regularly and consistently and constantly rejected Jesus Christ? Or are you the person who has fallen before the Lord Jesus Christ, the person who's come before God and said, I know that I'm a sinner. I know I need a savior. I know I need you. Save me, forgive me, restore me. You see, this world is split up into these two groups. There are no other groups that matter in this world. Nationality doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. The language that you speak doesn't matter. Your intellect doesn't matter. Your status, your wealth doesn't matter. But you're in one of these two groups. Who are you? Are you in Christ or are you outside of him? You know, we quite often like to think of ourselves as important and able and competent. But here is John the Baptist, one of the great preachers of the Bible. A man that we, looking at him, could rightly describe as being great. And he says, I'm just a voice. 
I'm just somebody who's speaking about God. He, he doesn't try and make himself out to be important. So you need to be aware of your identity. But you need to also be alert as to your activity. Look at verses 24 to 28. And this is where it really starts to get difficult for John the Baptist. This is where the bile and the fury and the anger all start to bubble over because they say, well, why are you doing these things? If you're not anybody that's important, why is it you're doing this? Why are you baptizing? If you're not Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you doing this? John's answer to the Pharisees is is not satisfactory. And they imply through their question that John has no right to do this. As far as the people of the world are concerned, or particularly the people of the religious order in Judea, John has got no credentials, he's got no credibility, he's got no right, he has got no purpose in doing these things. But John responds, he doesn't just let them off the hook, he responds not gently, but with a degree of force, and he says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one you don't even know. John knows that his credibility rests in God alone. John knows that his purpose has been given to him by God alone. And he points to the great tragedy of these people. In some ways, they're asking the right questions. In some ways, they are trying to get to the heart of the matter by saying, well, if, if, if you're not the Messiah, who is? If you're not the deliverer, then where do we find him? But John says, you don't even recognize him. Your activity is such as it's keeping you from knowing who Jesus Christ is. And John points to the greatest. He points to the Savior. He points to the one that he's proclaiming about. And John sees all that he does, his activity, his life work, as just simply trying to channel people into seeing this man, Jesus. His baptism is calling people to repentance. John isn't saving people, but he's saying, here's the one who will save And so instead of challenging me, surely, surely, you should be finding Jesus. And who is this Jesus? And John says, well, he's the one who's coming after me. He's the one that's going to start preaching now. He's the one that's going to start telling you about heaven and about hell and about repentance and about faith. And I'm going to stop. And John says, such is this person that I'm not even good enough to take his shoes off. Now this phrase here, whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, actually speaks about one of the most menial tasks that could be done in this first century. It was a job nobody wanted to do. It was a job that was seen as being beneath pretty much everybody. It was only the lowest of the lowest slaves who would do this. In fact, the rabbis of the day, the Jewish rabbis of the day, were forbidden from making their disciples take their shoes off because it would have demeaned their disciples. And John, this great preacher, John, this man of God, John, this one to whom people flocked and listened and and responded and went through baptism because of, he says, well, I'm not even worthy to do the worst job for the one who comes after me. Such is John's awareness of Jesus Christ. 
that he recognises his activity is not worthy of being done. Let me ask you about your activity. You know, this world challenges the church as to its activity. This church challenges, uh, this world challenges the church as to, if you say that Jesus is love, if you say that God is love, then why are you not this, that, or the other? If sin is forgiven, then why can we not sin some more? But let me challenge the activity that we have. Are we being faithful to Jesus Christ? Are we walking in the ways that he would have us walk? Are we going to the places that he would have us go? Are we behaving in the ways that we should behave because he's told us to behave that way? What's well, fine knowing the theory, but we have to be a people of activity. And the first activity is that you would come and that you would humble yourself and ask Christ to forgive you. But activity doesn't just stop with that. Are you the person who goes into work on a Monday morning and gives 100% despite having that Monday morning feeling? Are you the person who despite being extremely grumpy still shows love and compassion and care and all these things to people round about? Are you the person who, although you're so tired, that you're ready to go that extra mile for somebody who simply needs your help? You see, there's a challenge to our activity. The world criticizes us as Christians. But in many ways, that challenge is irrelevant. Because it's the challenge that God puts upon us that matters. Are we living for him? We are to be alert so that we might be aware of Jesus Christ. But this account does go on. And it tells us that in verses 29 to 34 that we should be a people who are appreciative. And John continues uh, the next day speaking about Jesus. You, you notice that John doesn't just speak about Jesus one day and then the next day he talks about something else. No, it's every day he's speaking about Jesus. And the next day here's Jesus coming to him and he says, look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the minute that John mentions the word lamb, he gets people thinking. And so we need to be appreciative about the history of Scripture. Because as John says that word lamb, he's taking people deep into the Old Testament, speaking about the sacrifice. It goes all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. Remember Abraham as he was going up into Mount Moriah? And his son Isaac says, well, we've got wood, we've got fire, we've got everything we need, but we don't have the sacrifice, Dad. How does Abraham respond? He says, God will provide the lamb. And so the people listening would have gone back to Genesis, but they would have gone back to Exodus chapter 12 when as a people, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews were enslaved in Egypt and God said, I will set you free. Take this lamb, slaughter the lamb and take its blood and paint it on your door. And this evening as the angel of death comes through Egypt, I will spare you, I will pass you over. And as the word lamb was mentioned, not only would they think about Abraham, but they would think about Moses and about Egypt and about how God had taken them out of captivity. 
And even beyond that, they would have remembered the sacrifices that went up to the tabernacle or to the temple. And the person would take an animal, and usually it was a lamb, and they would put that animal to death, and the animal would be burned, and the sacrifice would be made to God, and their sin would have been forgiven for that day. Here is a people who would have looked into the history of Scripture, into the history of God's Word. And let me just put to you this morning, how do you feel about God's Word? How do you feel about the Bible? Because there are many people who say, oh, it's God's Word, I love it, I cherish it, I'll do what it says. And it's very easy to do that on a Sunday. But when we leave the church building and we go out into the world and we find ourselves surrounded by colleagues and by neighbors and friends, all of a sudden the, the commands of the Bible are a little less appealing. All of a sudden the truth of the Bible becomes a little harder to cling to. All of a sudden the Bible just seems to be that thing that we read and study and look at on a Sunday and we forget the rest of the time. John the Baptist was a man who placed a high value in Scripture. He knew it. He understood it as far as he could and he applied it. And that is why he could say, look, here is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the, the sin of the world. Now he's not saying that every single person was going to be saved. But he was saying every single person who believes in this Lamb will be delivered from sin and will be spared the punishment that was due them. When you read Scripture, appreciate that God is speaking to you. Even if you go to the best Christian book that there ever has been written, and I don't know how, what you would say that would be, it still is a man-made document. This is a divinely inspired book that we have before us. Let me assure you that every word of this is from God. The Bible does not just contain God's word but it is God's word. And that is a great truth that we should know. This is God's word before us in black and white. It cannot be broken. It cannot diminish. It will never disappear. And so therefore, every time you open its pages and you read, you are reading what God is saying to you. Value it. Apply yourself to it. But also as we, as we move on in verses 32 to 34, we see that John is not just appreciative of God's word, but he's appreciative of divine revelation. And this is where some preachers can start to get on shaky ground, and I hope I'm not there this morning. But, but John, he says, he says, I have seen this man, Jesus, and God has given me the sign that this is the Messiah. The sign that the Holy Spirit descended upon him and remained upon him. The sign that said something like a dove came down from heaven as I was baptizing him and showed him to be the Messiah. John and Jesus Christ were cousins of a sort. They were related. They would have known each other by face. They would have recognized each other's appearance. But this is John recognizing that Jesus is the Messiah. And God gives him the sign. And John recognizes that sign as coming from a divine source. So let me tell you that we must be appreciative of divine revelation. What is divine revelation? 
Well, divine revelation is always about the Son of God. It's always about the person of Christ. It's specific. It's not vague. And so this morning, if you know Jesus is the Christ, then let me assure you, God has revealed that to you. Divine revelation tells us that Christ is Lord, that he is Savior. It doesn't negate the importance of Scripture, but underpins it, because that's what Scripture does. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, although Christ is not mentioned in every verse, his fingerprints are over every single word in Scripture. Although not every verse speaks about the cross, the overriding message of each and every book of the Bible is that God redeems, that God saves. But to know this is the work of God in your heart. We need to be accepting, we need to be appreciative. Thirdly and finally, we see that to be aware of Jesus Christ, not only are we alert, not only are we appreciative, but we have to be accepting. And verses 35 to 36 uh, bring us to that first portion uh, of John speaking with his two disciples. They're not named in this part of the Bible, but we only need to read a few verses down to find that these two uh, disciples of John are actually Andrew and John, the one who's writing this gospel account. And again, John points to Jesus and said, here's the one who will save you. Here's the one who will deliver you. Here's the one who will take away your sin. Here's the one who will die for you. And Andrew and John can only respond in a particular way, and we'll find that in verse 37. But what John the Baptist does is he says, you need to accept the direction you must take. You need to accept that Christ is the way to salvation. You need to accept that he is the one that God has anointed, that God has chosen, that God will redeem through. And what John is saying to his two disciples is, here is the one who's greater than I am. Here is the one that you must follow rather than me. Do you behold Christ this morning? Because if you behold him, then you will do what he asks of you. If you will accept the direction you must take, then you will come to him in faith. You will come to him for salvation. But verse 37 tells us that we must accept the responsibility that comes upon us. And that is how the two disciples respond it's very simple in this verse it simply says they followed Jesus imagine that you have your own group of disciples following you and you turn to them and say don't follow me but follow him John would John the Baptist would say I must decrease so that he must increase And the Baptist really encourages, if he doesn't even command his disciples to go after Jesus. John's subordinate to Christ. He's accepted his position. And John wants his disciples to do the same. We have to ask ourselves day after day, am I in submission to Jesus Christ? Do I do what he wants me to do? Do I go where he wants me to go? It trips off our tongue, yes, I will, but when the rubber hits the road, it can be difficult to obey our Savior. 
because we have the pressure from the world that says you are foolish for doing so. We have the uh, antagonism of the world that says, well, we'll persecute you if you follow Jesus Christ. But just as these disciples who loved John the Baptist left and followed Jesus, so we must leave what perhaps we love and follow Jesus. It might be that you love this world. It might be that you love all that it offers, the pleasure, the attraction of promises, the activity of the world. You might love all of that. But we are called to leave it behind and to follow Jesus Christ. And so we must be accepting of that direction, accepting of that responsibility and follow Jesus Christ. How aware are you of Jesus Christ today? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he requires of you? Do you know what he wants to give you? Are you alert? Are you ready to deal with the challenges? Are you appreciative? Do you know all that Christ has done and we are about to gather around the table and and remember the death of Jesus Christ once again? Are you accepting? Have you responded to Christ by saying, yes, you are my saviour? We need to be aware of who Christ is. And we need to be aware of who we are before him. Have you come? Have you trusted? Are you obeying? Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this passage this morning. We thank you for men like John the Baptist uh, who have helped us by their example. And we do pray that you would just simply open our eyes to the great example of our Lord Jesus Christ and his obedience to you in coming into this world. We ask that you would help us trust him and be in submission to him and be prepared to give our lives to him. He gave himself for us on the cross. There is only one proper response and that is to give ourselves to him. And so it's our prayer this morning that you will remind us of all that has been done for us and that you will cause our hearts to be overwhelmed by the person of Jesus Christ. And may we trust him, be it for the first time, or we may even rededicate ourselves to him this morning so that our lives be lived in submission and to the priority of Jesus Christ. Help us, we pray, for we ask it in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.